year after year when CPC has new revisions or changes that happen to the guidelines, I think it's really important that it's laid out very clearly. Does that require you to go to the doctor every three months, every six months, every month? Our sponsors over at OncoSpark created the Spark Advisory Network, backed by technology tools and services through their Code Interceptor program. This helps teams work smarter and not harder. Unpaid claims are wasting your time and costing your practice money. Most denials are due to coding and billing inaccuracies because staff may lack the proper education or are just spread way too thin. This is preventable with focused and uninterrupted verification. Our code interceptor experts will intercept your claims before they are submitted to ensure accuracy and completeness. This will reduce hours of working unnecessary denials and appeals while increasing timely payments you need to care for your patients. With current trends and staffing shortages, our team can create confidence and consistency. Contact OncoSpark today for a no-obligation consultation. Take back your revenue today. Visit www.oncospark.com. This podcast represents the opinions and views of the host and their guests. The content should not be taken as legal or professional advice and is intended for informational purposes only. Welcome to Healthcare Crossroads, a podcast showcasing the connections we make in healthcare data, compliance, and patient care. We are at a crossroads in healthcare. Let's make an impact by bringing together physicians, nurses, healthcare information management professionals, and legal experts in healthcare. Everyone in healthcare intersects. Let's find out how. This is Healthcare Crossroads. Here is your host, Jennifer McNamara. Hello, this is Jennifer McNamara, and I am your host. As you know, this podcast is dedicated to showcasing the connections that we make in healthcare data, compliance, and patient care. Now, if there is one area of reimbursement that begs the attention of all three, it is evaluation and management. It is no secret that evaluation and management documentation and improper modifier usage is always a hot topic in relation to E&M services, especially by the Office of Inspector General, the OIG. They have been monitoring modifiers such as modifier 25 for over 15 years, and we are still no closer to getting that right. With regard to E&M services, they are what I call the ambiguous wildcard because every person who codes or bills these services is either relying on the physician to understand how to utilize the official guidelines or they have to abstract the data themselves from documentation and build the most appropriate level. In the year 2021, how we determine the level of service, to me, in my opinion, got a whole lot easier. But because I have been trained for over 20 years on how to understand the medical decision-making portion of that service, this portion, of course, now drives the bus in addition to the component of time, But I know for some of you out there, it's still daunting. And those of you that are new in the industry and still haven't quite figured out how to master this area of documentation, reimbursement, and basically just getting paid for these services, we wanted to give you some insight and some tips from our advisory network. My name is Sonal Patel. I am a certified coder and a certified 
auditor and I've been working in this particular niche of medical coding, billing, auditing, and compliance for just over 12 years. Hey y'all, this is Betty Hovey. I am the senior consultant and owner of Compliant Healthcare Solutions. Hi, my name is Terry Fletcher and I'm an independent healthcare consultant, auditor, educator, and author and podcaster. So I have about uh, eight of my own and I've been asked to speak on different podcast platforms to hopefully give you some insights on the healthcare happenings that are happening out there right now and some of the uh, industry hotspots. Hi, I'm Christine Hall. I am the CEO and senior consultant at Sterling Global Solutions, specializing in compliance, coding, billing, auditing, risk adjustment, evaluation and management. We also provide education. So over the next few episodes, we are going to bring you some hot button topics in the form of an advisory committee that we've assembled. This committee will answer these hot button topics as it relates to problems addressed, such as chronic conditions. What exacerbated equates to complicated versus uncomplicated, prescription drug management, minor versus major surgery, and so much more. This is Unraveling Evaluation and Management Series, Part 1, Understanding a Patient's Condition. In order to understand the first column of the medical decision-making table, we need to break down certain definitions. Not everyone has the same experience level, as we discussed. So that's what I mean by wildcard. You never know what kind of result you'll get. You can get five different coders in a room, all with a different take. Some may agree, but maybe they agree for different reasons. Some may have a clinical background, so they know things, right, about anatomy and disease process that maybe others do not. Challenge yourself. What do you not know about acute versus chronic? A physician's thought process. Do you know how a physician determines treatment for a given disease? Guess what? You can learn all of this. Now let's start with a very basic comparison with that of acute versus chronic. There are many areas of the medical decision-making table that require the knowledge of acute versus chronic. Some conditions are chronic by nature, nature of the disease, because we know that you always have it. It is incurable. Other conditions become chronic due to injury and really just never get better or because of lack of proper attention maybe by the patient. So they didn't take care of themselves and they got worse and this condition became chronic over time. It's important to understand not only the clinical definitions of chronic, but also the definitions given to us uh, with the chronicity in the American Medical Association's official guidelines. All of these areas need considered by a physician in determining the risk to either have or not have treatment. So we're going to break down some of these today. First, let's check in with one of our special advisors today, Christine Hall, as she discusses the differential and how we can understand the American Medical Association definition. One of the things that we see in the, the new E&M guidelines is that differential between chronic conditions, chronic stable or chronic unstable. And, and I think that coders need to understand that when we talk about chronic conditions, not only are they conditions that plan to last for a year or longer, but these are conditions that will actively need the provider's enrollment on a regular basis to be stable. So for example, dry skin. I mean, some people may have dry skin their whole life, but does that require regular visits to the physician? It could, 
right? And I, I would have to see documentation to support why that would be the case. Or um, maybe even something like obesity. Um, that Does that require you to go to the doctor every three months, every six months, every month, right? To, to get on the scale again. So we look at chronic conditions like that and we really have to think, is this a condition that in order to remain stable or at goal that requires that constant management of the physician on a regular basis to achieve that goal, right? Not just, um, you know, I have dry skin, I'm going to have it the rest of my life. You make sure that it's a condition that does require that relationship with the physician for at least one year to get the condition stable. And in some cases, we can resolve them. We have chronic conditions. Actually, CMS has an entire list of chronic conditions, and, and even more so, they have a warehouse of chronic conditions, and they describe those conditions as conditions that once we've reached that, that point, um, they're going to deal or manage this condition the rest of their life. So if we think about COPD, there's no cure for COPD. There's no getting better from COPD. The patient will always struggle with COPD. Now, hopefully, we can get them to a stable asymptomatic with that COPD, but they're always going to have it. It's not going to get cured. Um, CHF, congestive heart failure, they're not going to get better. We haven't found a cure for it yet. And so we have those conditions that innately are chronic because they will not go away. It's not something, someone who is diabetic because their pancreas was removed, that diabetes will never go away. And, and so it doesn't need to be titled chronic diabetes because they don't even have a pancreas, right? Or chronic COPD, it's, it's in the term chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So it doesn't need to be chronic, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or, um, you know, any of those as we get older. And so I have found out there are some conditions like arthritis where it's not going to get better. We can manage it. But it's going to continue to be a lifelong battle. And, and outside of not having that verbiage in the ICD-10 guidelines, we do need to look at other authoritative resources like CMS that point out those conditions to us that don't get better. We just manage them. We just, the goal now is to get them stable, not cured, because there's no cure. Christine makes an excellent point. After all, we are talking about chronic conditions that require management versus conditions that need to be further clarified as to their chronicity. Now let's run over and check in with Terry Fletcher. Let's hear further some examples and distinctions between acute and chronic. Now Terry does have a clinical background and can offer you a unique perspective. With, as you know, with AAOS guidelines, they have things that are, if you've had a certain condition, it's always seems to be based on time or age. So, um, you know, rotator cuff, if you, if you're over 35, you're considered old or it could be chronic. If you're under 35, which I take a, you know, exception to under 35, really, um, then it's considered, could be considered, you know, acute as far as the, the length of time you've had it. So I don't try to quantify chronic as just time. Chronic to me means something you can actually live with. That's why they're trying to say there may not be a cure for cancer, but they may be able to make it chronic. 
So I look for the contrast between acute and chronic to make that determination. So acute illnesses, they are pretty much developing suddenly. So you wake up one day and go, wow, how'd I get that? They last a short period of time. Um, and then maybe if a few days or weeks, they can turn into chronic once they um, you have them for a certain period of time. But for example, somebody with asthma, now that is a chronic condition, but it could be an asthma attack could be uh, considered acute versus chronic. Um, fractures, a broken bone, maybe a blood sugar spike without actually having the diagnosis of diabetes. To me, those would be uh, considered acute. And then chronic conditions, they develop slowly and worsen over an extended period of time. Could be months, years. Um, and I mentioned asthma in the long term or diabetes in the long term, you know, those lasting effects on how the patient's um, metabolism can turn that food into energy. Um, but the ortho orthopedic setting, they really like this term chronic versus acute. Um, for example, I have something called frozen shoulder, my right shoulder, and it is very painful. And it's usually for women over 50. But because treatment really doesn't work, the only thing that's really able to fix it is physical therapy. And of course, weight loss. Um, it can turn into a long-term problem and could be considered chronic. So um, there's no rule for it, only recommendations. And I think once you get into more maybe cardiology conditions, it's something that's not going away. It's just something that has to be managed. Now, I hope these clarifications will make it a little easier for you to distinguish acute versus chronic. So thank you to our advisors. Now, no matter what specialty we are, we have to understand these items as it's unique to our specialty. Remember, each patient is unique and what is true for one may not be for the other. In the medical decision-making table, we also find acute conditions that need to be classified as to complicated versus uncomplicated. So looking at our acute conditions, we have to break down, you know, going from one to the other and vice versa. You know, you can go from uncomplicated to complicated and back down again, from visit to visit, from encounter to encounter. Let's hear Terry talk about the nature of complicated versus uncomplicated and break down some examples for us. We're trying to figure out the physician's thought process. Okay. And, so, and AMA is trying to give the physician basically, um, I don't want to say liberties, but um, control over that particular patient's medical profile. And so it is, it can be very subjective but the biggest thing is what are you adding to an uncomplicated condition? So a routine condition, let's call uncomplicated routine. So for example, a urinary tract infection, okay, an infection of the, of the lower urinary tract, possibly bladder and urethra. Some people just take cranberry pills. Uh, some people know when it's coming and, you know, they'll go into the, the primary care office and they'll say, you know, and they'll give them maybe some augmentin and it'll go away. So it, it's just, it's basically considered an uncomplicated infection. But when that now extends beyond, and that's the big thing, extends beyond the bladder to maybe the kidneys, and now it's more serious, maybe it's during pregnancy, maybe it's after menopause, uh, maybe it now goes into kidney stones, uh, pancreatic issues. Now you've got some complications that maybe an antibiotic in itself won't take care of the problem. And so now it becomes complicated because now that impact of that condition now is affecting other things, which now you get into to that term systemic, where now it's like, it's almost like a, you're driving a car and you have a flat tire. That's the UTI. But now that flat tire is now making your car, um, you know, you, you now need to have a, 
um, a change in the other side because your car is going up and down. Maybe you have to have an alignment because now it's changing, you know, and, and it's like you're going over rocks and maybe now it's putting stress on a different part of the car. Maybe it's now it's causing a leak somewhere else. And that's why you also see patients that are admitted in the hospital, let's say with a, uh, a hip fracture go down so quickly because it usually the body's so trying so hard to work on one uncomplicated problem that it takes away from the rest of what's going on in the body. And now other things start to kind of fall off the, the wheel, if you will, fall off the tracks. So complications and uncomplicated versus complicated. I really try to get the physicians and their judgment to make the call on that. But it's really when something that's routine now takes on a life of its own and starts to affect other issues. Thank you, Terry, for giving us those very important examples. You know, it's so important that we keep going back to that thought process from our physicians. In the year 2023, we know we were given some revisions where our hospital services were brought into those official guidelines that we were given in 2021. And we're going to be ever more scrutinized. We're going to keep preaching and keep pushing for our physicians to give us more, give us more information to help justify medical necessity. We have to get from that thought process from what brought the patient in, that chief complaint, the history of their illness. We need to ask those questions. We need to get that examination going and see where they have the, the need of being uh, given treatment based on their organ systems. And once we decide that problem that they have, how we've addressed it, we move into that risk area. and We look at the risk of complications of either having or not having the treatment. So all of that information is still important. So we have to get really a lot better at making good use of the full documentation. Whether we get reimbursed for it or not, it still has to be there, right? Well, now let's turn our attention to our advisor, Christine Hall. She's gonna discuss what happens when we have a patient that goes from complicated to uncomplicated. Remember, we are talking about what is occurring today. Now, we look at the problem list and we see maybe sometimes we see it copied over. We're not talking about the problems that we've copied over from three months ago that says what the patient had three months ago. We're talking about what's presenting today because as we know, something can go from uncomplicated to complicated as Terry mentioned, but we also know it can go from complicated down to uncomplicated at the next visit, which is our goal, right? So let's hear Christine talk more about this. So when your, your problem complexity no longer presents that threat to the patient's life or to bodily function. So uh, Jennifer, you'd shared with me about your ankle fracture and the way that I would kind of see it is initially that was very complicated. It required a complicated surgery. It, there was conditions of healing there that needed to be met. And so that made it complicated. But at some point we were happy with the surgery. We were happy with the way that you were progressing and it no longer became complicated. And now it was an uncomplicated injury as problem complexity is, as it proposes. So kind of like we're saying we're out of the woods, right? We started off and it required a lot of attention. It required a lot of diagnostic testing to manage, to, to see because the risk was really great to the patient. But if we've done our job right and we're now on the mend and we're hoping to have positive outcomes, then it becomes less complicated. Maybe that's a better word, uh, complicated to less complicated rather than uncomplicated, 
we're going to have a, 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 a successful outcome. So that's my, that way I, I view that complicated transition to uncomplicated. We're out of the woods at this point and we have a positive prognosis and, and each one is different. And we do hope that it becomes uncomplicated. That would be the goal. Anybody would want that, right? So when we talk about that complication, we're talking about the complication as it presents today. You have fallen, you've fractured your ankle, the vessels are complicated, the bones are complicated, the tendons are involved. And if today we don't go in there and do a radical surgery to put everything back where it needs to be, then you're going to have permanent damage for maybe the rest of your life or for a very long period of time. And so we need to keep remembering what does the problem look like today? Excellent insight from Christine, as usual. And we should all be going back to our physicians, helping them see that our goal is to tell the patient's story. We want that story told. Going from one extreme to the other and back to goal is what we want. We would like to get them back to goal. Of course, we'd like to not even have them get out of control in the first place, right? And experience that severe exacerbation. We know that it's difficult for you physicians out there to get sometimes your patients to listen to you. They may ignore your advice and your recommendations altogether, which leads to an exacerbation. We need you to tell us. Tell us all of this. If they don't listen to you, tell us. Did you recommend a certain treatment that they did not follow? Tell us. We want to paint that picture, as my good friend Sanal Patel says in her podcast, Paint the Medical Picture. Now, speaking of Sanal, let's check in with her. Sanal is one of our key advisors, and she'll give us some insight into the differences in exacerbation versus severe exacerbation. You know, we've had the chance these past few months, right, since we received our CPT books, I received mine, I know, at the end of November. Um, so I, I actually did take the time to read through all of that green text. I don't know if everybody knows that in the audience, but year after year when CPT has new revisions or changes that happen to the guidelines, the text in the actual um, paper book, the large manual that comes in the mail is green. And so, you know, when you read through all of that new green text, I think it's really important that it's laid out very clearly, right? So if we've ever had questions in our past work, right, past questions from providers, other colleagues, et cetera, about what the difference is from exacerbation to how does it suddenly escalate to a severe exacerbation? So it's laid out really well in CPT with the entire section that is called chronic illness with exacerbation, progression, or side effects of treatment, right? And they lay it all out to spell out that for this particular section of the problem that's being addressed by the provider in the documentation, right, based on the patient's chronic illness with exacerbation, that means that it is not going to escalate so far as to require the consideration of sending that patient off to the hospital to continue treatment. So what it states directly in CPT is that it's a chronic illness that's acutely worsening, it's poorly controlled, or it's progressing with an intent to control the progression, and it requires additional supportive care 
or it requires the attention to treatment for side effects, but that does not require consideration to the hospital level of care. So that's, I think, a very important takeaway there is that when it states that the patient is chronically ill with an exacerbation that is not severe, right? That means that it's not so necessary to go ahead and ship that patient off to the hospital. But they do delineate and um, explain further for what it is for the chronic illness with a severe exacerbation, progression, or side effects of treatment. And in the new coding guidelines for 23, it states right there in that green text that there is absolutely most definitely then in that case, a significant risk of morbidity or the patient dying, right? Which means that that physician will have to ship that patient off to require a higher level of care in the hospital or observation setting. So I hope that helps uh, clear up what the specifics are for exacerbation and severe exacerbation. Thank you so much, Sanal, for giving us your insights. I also want to hear now from Betty Hovey, who will identify for us some examples that we can use to clarify these differences. When something is um, severely exacerbated, that's going to be at that kind of tipping point to where you may see in the note that the physician or uh, APP is considering, you know, escalation of care, hospitalization, things like that for the patient. So uh, a good example would be like an asthmatic patient. So a patient that is having an asthma attack uh, versus a patient that is in status asthmaticus, you know, so an asthma attack you know, uh, is exacerbated, could be severely exacerbated, depending on what the documentation says. But if a patient's in status asthmaticus, they are going to need to be um, sent to the hospital. So that would be some an asthma that was severely exacerbated. Thank you so much, Betty, for those great examples. We're going to now check in with Terry as she gives us some insights further into the physician thought process in this area. Severe, in my opinion, actually means that you're either hospital worthy or something has to be done immediately to be able to uh, temper down um, the progression of that condition. So for me, an exacerbation, um, just a plain exacerbation without the word severe is, a, is an acute event and it's worsening of the patient's symptoms, but just beyond the normal day-to-day -day variations. You know, it necessitates maybe a change of medication, maybe the current treatment plan, the doctor has a concern about it, but more in a moderate level of decision-making. So what can we do to make this better? But severe exacerbation, now this is that flare-up that, again, you're trying to figure out how to stabilize it because now there could be a consideration of hospitalization or risk for the patient to deteriorate or worsen. So I think um, exacerbation versus severe exacerbation actually is a pretty big leap. Thanks so much, Terry. Now that we have a good understanding of interpreting these differences, we now want to move along and talk about some of those changes that were added to the 2023 table in a revision to the 2021 guidelines. In our low section, we were given the acute uncomplicated illness or injury requiring hospital inpatient or observation level of care. Now we know a patient might need to be admitted to the hospital for an acute uncomplicated illness that gets them to the hospital. Maybe they checked in for this uncomplicated illness and while they're there, they might, of course, uh, get back to their goal 
and be discharged, or maybe they have to have an escalation. Maybe there is something more serious going on. But at that point in time, that uncomplicated illness is what brought them in to that visit that day, right? So let's talk with Christine a little bit about the differences between exacerbation or severe exacerbation and how this equates to hospital-level care as it relates to our guidelines. Well, to me, I look at it pretty logically. If it's a severe exacerbation, it requires immediate attention, or we're going to have some threat to life or to bodily function in the near term, where exacerbation still, again, requires that immediate attention, but we're doing it to return the patient maybe back to a stable condition or that they're no longer symptomatic. So I look at it that way, um, severe exacerbation, time is of the essence. We're going to have some permanent damage in the very short period of time where exacerbated, you know, it's, it, we're not feeling good. It's not at goal. It's, we, we have to do something to bring the patient back to stable or, or asymptomatic. Great stuff indeed, Christine. Thank you. We do have to differentiate our low versus moderate or versus high, again, based on severity and the physician thought process. We're going to keep talking about that thought process. This will get us there. Finally, in today's episode, we will touch on one more element of the problems addressed, and that is an area where we may not have a definitive answer, and we're still needing to get further testing to determine the treatment. In the moderate level, we have the undiagnosed new problem with uncertain prognosis. Be careful, y'all. It's a moderate level. So what's the definition? It's a problem in the differential between two different scenarios that represents a condition likely to result in a high risk of morbidity without treatment. Again, pay attention, likely to result in a high risk of morbidity without treatment. We are getting just a little bit too cavalier with this one, guys. Not just any old I don't know will do. We have to be careful. Let's listen to Christine and Terry break these down for us. When we talk about the undiagnosed new problem with uncertain prognosis, we have to have that differential diagnosis. We absolutely, uh, although we're not going to diagnose that differential diagnosis, but if you go on to see that the expectation is that the patient, that uncertain diagnosis could put the patient at high risk of morbidity, meaning loss of life or threat to life and bodily function there. So when we look at that uncertain condition, you know, we're not really talking about the patient that presents with cough, runny nose, achy, maybe some fever, it could be bronchitis, or it could be pneumonia. Um, Again, pneumonia could become something much worse, but we're, we see that in documentation there as opposed to, and in both of those conditions with proper treatment, you know, they might be uncomplicated. You have pneumonia, we cure pneumonia and you go on to, to wear the hat that I've previously had pneumonia. Um, so again, not, not a long-term effect of that, but then we're looking at other conditions like, is this a... Um, a benign tumor or is it a malignant tumor? We're not quite sure yet, but we know it's a tumor. And so that if it turns out to be malignant, you know, there's a good chance that that malignant tumor will pose a threat to that patient's life. And so we can, we can almost feel it 
when they describe that differential diagnosis, that that differential diagnosis has that very serious consequence attached to it. So one of the things I was really disappointed about with the 2023 guidelines is AMA actually took out all of the examples that they gave us that this could be, you know, level two, level three, four, five. And, you know, I think they, they were, they took them out because they felt that people were saying, if it wasn't this, then there's nothing outside the box that would equal it. And I think that's unfortunate because at least it gave us a little bit of a roadmap on, oh, okay, that makes sense. Now we know what we're looking at, but, and they thought it was becoming an all-inclusive list, which it wasn't. But their last example, and they still stand by this, is a breast mass or lump. So because of that, you you don't know what it is. You don't know if it is cancer. You don't know what it is until you move forward with a procedure to you know get a pathology on that. Um, if a patient comes in with flu-like symptoms, that could depend as well. That could be considered undiagnosed new problem until maybe you do a strep or you do you know some kind of blood work to figure out if it's COVID or whatever. And if it's combined symptoms, then it, it still could be considered an undiagnosed new problem. But if, if it is a, um, and it's with an uncertain prognosis, here's where there's a catch kind of, if you're a specialist that the patient's coming in to see, and you have a patient, let's say that has chest pain, shortness of breath, and it's determined at the end of that exam and of that encounter that the patient needs to go in for a cath because you definitely suspect some coronary artery disease, it's, it's hard to put that in that category. So um, that would almost be, you know, an, an acute problem with possible systemic issues. So you want to look at something that your physician is still fact finding, trying to figure out what is this new problem and how are we going to um, treat it? So if, if that's the case, then it may fall into that category. Well, first of all, I want to thank today's advisors for joining the show. Our advisory network would not succeed without each one of you. And I, of course, am happy to call you my friends and colleagues. We do what we do because we care about the patients that are being treated by the physician population. And we know that it doesn't only affect, you know, the physician reimbursement, it affects the patients themselves. The physicians being able to continue treating them because they have the reimbursement that they need to keep going. And we know that down the road, additional physicians will need to look at that documentation to assess and get the full picture for the patient they need to take care of. Now, we know that we can get on our call and talk to that physician, but having a complete authoritative record will be such a blessing to them. It will reduce waste and contribute to better efficiency and patient care. So let's always remember that. Again, thank you to our listeners for supporting the show. And as always, we cannot keep doing this without your support. So we encourage you to jump on over to anchor.fm forward slash healthcare crossroads and help support us. Thank you again to our sponsors over at OncoSpark and their amazing tools that help us identify trends in our healthcare data to help us improve in our reimbursement. You can find more information about these tools, such as authparency and code interceptor in our show notes. Thank you to our music and podcast producer, Gabriel Fast with Highland Productions. Until next time. Thanks for joining us this week on Healthcare Crossroads. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss a show. Thank you to our sponsors at OncoSpark. OncoSpark is a technology-enabled revenue cycle management company. They help you effectively manage claims data with technology solutions. Check out their website to learn more at www.oncospark.com. Thank you, OncoSpark.
The barriers for practices and patients due to prior authorizations are a clinical and clerical issue. I want to thank OncoSpark for designing a platform that streamlines and standardizes the authorization process. This optimizes staff and resources while decreasing the time a patient must wait. The platform will seamlessly integrate with your practice management system and electronic medical record, alerting you to expiring authorizations or order changes. Off-parency's reports can be used for internal development as well as payer and pharma accountability. Direct insurance verification and specialty pharmacy hub enrollment are standard modules in the platform too. So jump on over to authparency.com. That's www.authparency.com and get started today with this amazing tool.